Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 137 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Iona Wayland all about how to write mental health and trauma experiences. And of course, given the topic, I do want to make it very clear that if you do have trigger warnings, this episode may not be for you. This is a very uh, heavy topic. It's very difficult. We do talk about um, hard topics. And so I just want to make it clear uh, that uh, if you do have trigger warnings, I would maybe consider skipping this episode. So last week's question was, uh, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey so far? Claire Louise said, love this podcast. The biggest lesson for my writing journey so far is that it's all right for your uh, for your project to take time. It's good even because the time means that I'm crafting something to the best of my ability. Publishing stories hype up the idea of overnight success. Oh my God, they really do. But actually books take months, years even of hard graft. It's okay that there's been a few years since my last book because the next one is all the better for it. Shane Miller said, fantastic episode, biggest lesson from the last year is that working full-time in my author business is possible and I will achieve that goal no matter what. Yeah, you will. Okay, so in line with the topic for this week, my question of the week is how are you looking after yourself? The book recommendation of the week this week is The Best Seller Code by Matthew Jockers and Jodie Archer. I am reading this and finding it very fascinating. It's basically um, a academic pair who created a bit of software, a bit of kit to that can basically predict whether or not the a book is going to be a bestseller. And so they've drawn out patterns to establish like what the commonalities are between uh, books that end up on the New York Times bestseller lists, etc. And I'm not sure I'm learning anything particularly new, but it is deeply fascinating and deeply insightful. And for a pair of academics, it's actually very readable as well. I'm really enjoying it. And yeah, they did a good job. So if you are interested in a bit of geekery uh, with statistics for the publishing world, then I would highly recommend this book. So in personal update, I don't even know uh, where I was last week. So last week, I think as I was recording this, it was possibly the launch day of Trey, uh, the book that nearly killed me. I finally released and got it out. And so, yay, the the trilogy is now done. I do have kind of a bonus novella Easter egg type thing uh, for series readers, which will come out at the end of this month. In fact, just before I head off to New York. but now I am desperately trying to finish the next nonfiction book, which is called The Anatomy of a Bestseller. I am really excited to share this book with you. I'm super close to the end. I kind of thought I would finish it last week, but then um, various uh, like exhaustion things post-COVID still uh, plaguing me. I'm actually quite a lot better this week, which is good. Uh, but then we heard a bloody uh, bank holiday. <laughs> so I lost a day this week and it was a writing day as well. Mondays are usually my writing days. So um, uh, I don't think I will finish it this week. I think it will maybe by middle of next week I will be done. I'm not sure, hopefully. Uh, I am so, so close. I am like 
what happens with me when I get close to the end of the first draft I tend to start freaking out I tend to go into a lot of imposter syndrome and doubt and what if the book's no good what if it's rubbish what if I've said something wrong what if people don't find it useful on and on and on and on I go literally having a sort of meltdown over getting and it's just because I know that um, after a quick edit I'm gonna have to send it off and so I'm just freaking out about that so <laughs> I don't know if that's reassuring to anybody who's a newer writer but that doesn't seem to go away for me and I got I don't even know how many books I'm in now but yeah, it just doesn't seem to go away. What, um, maybe I should tell you guys like what this book is about. So essentially, Anatomy of a Bestseller is all about looking at the market, looking at the books in your genre and being able to deconstruct what they're doing well so that you can do that only better. Um, I think it's going to, not I think, I know it's, it is looking at everything from sentence level to kind of character and scene level up to like story level. And then it also has some sections on uh, looking at the market as well and kind of really knowing how to deconstruct the market and what's going on in the market. And um, yeah, so like it is it is not going to tell you how to write a lightning bolt, you know, um, Fifty Shades of Grey, because nobody can do that. And if they try and tell you they can, they're fucking lying. Um, but it will show you how to know what it is that these best-selling authors are doing and why it's so good. And yeah, so I am excited. I really hope like this is a little different than anything that I've done before which is also why I'm nervous um but I am running these masterclasses with the Patreon uh, group at a certain level where we read books and we deconstruct and I kind of show everybody what uh, the book has done well, what the book hasn't done so well, what tools and tactics they can take out of the books in order to put into their own works, in their own voices. And this is sort of where it's come from, um, along with a little bit of stuff that was already kind of in my head and things that I was talking about. So yeah, I'm like really excited and I finally feel like I can start talking about it because I'm really close to the end of the book. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not going to be a huge book. It's not going to be as big as prose or side characters. I reckon it's more going to be along the size of villains and heroes um, because the thing is it's actually a really practical like a lot of the stuff in there is about being really really practical so um, yeah I am excited and I, I'm starting to get nervous but yeah I hope that that one is out kind of before summer I don't know like I'm not gonna fuck about like I'm just gonna I'm just gonna publish it so <laughs> yeah once I get it done I'm gonna send it to some critique partners and then once they give me their feedback I will do that and then get it to the editor and I'm just I'm just gonna fucking publish it we're just gonna go for it baby so um yeah and then so as soon as that is done I am going to finally finish The Scent of Death and I would like that done really before the summer kind of really properly hits uh because I'm away for like three weeks this summer so um I really need to not have a book hanging over me and yeah, I'm kind of trying to pin down what the next series is that I'm going to work on because I have two series that I've loosely that I've loosely got in my head and I can't quite decide which one I should be working on um, 
and maybe I'll just combine the two. I don't know, but that's probably a recipe for a disaster, to be honest. So um, yeah, I'm trying to make that decision. And I'm also working on an idea for a course that I'm super excited about. I was working on the Enemies to Lovers course and I I am gonna finish that one, Um, but I've had a different, better idea that I'm really excited for. Um, So I have been just like outlining a bit more because it's gonna be bigger, meatier. And yeah, so I have also been working on that and I will tell you guys more about that when I can. Okay. The rebel of the week this week is Lena Johnson. Lena says, in high school English, we were studying the hero's journey. As one of our assignments, the teacher had us write a story using all of its beats in two pages. Two pages for the hero's journey? That is ridiculous. You can't write a proper hero's journey in two goddamn pages. I'm a writer and I've always been a writer, so challenge fucking accepted. I wrote an epic tale of humans and elves hitting every single beat and that fucker was 11 pages long. (laughs) When the teacher was handing back the assignments, I could see my chonker in the middle of all the teeny itty bitty two page stories. She plops my story on my desk and the only comment on the entire document was a big fat A on the top. Yeah, that's right. I aced the assignment two pages my ass. (laughs) Oh my goodness me. I absolutely love, love, love that story. I love that you got an A anyway. Like I wasn't sure where this story was going and if like the the teacher might have failed you and just to be an asshole because you didn't adhere to like the rules. But I loved this story and I love that it, oh, I just, I loved it. I loved all of the story. Um, Thank you so much for sending this in. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. Like literally guys, we are always in desperate need. We cycle around having sort of four or five in the bank at any one time. So, you know, especially for this summer when I go away, I'm going to need these stories because I'm going to record like a few episodes uh, so that the, the three weeks that I'm away is covered. So yeah, please do send in your stories. It can be any kind of rebellion. It can be a big one, a small one, something in between. It can be about a pet. It can be about a relative. I don't care. I just want the stories. Please send your story to Becca on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. Two new patrons this week. Welcome and a big thank you to Valerie Ishan and CJ Dainton. Thank you so, so much for joining me, you guys. Um, There is stacks of stuff going on from uh, being in the Slack group to the quarterly challenge to the monthly Poison and Prose uh, live Q&A sessions that we do and writing together. So um, yeah, maybe I should like put a post together about all the stuff going on. Actually, that's probably a good idea. Um, So yes, thank you so, so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate the support. Um, It means everything to me. It helps to pay for the cost of the show. It helps to pay for my time. So yeah, I am deeply grateful. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content and goodies, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, that is it from me. We're going to get on with the episode now and just to mention once again if anybody does have any triggers this is probably not the episode for you um so yes I just wanted to reiterate that as we are going to crack on with the episode now last uh quick point I recorded this episode 
I think whilst I still had COVID or it was literally just after having COVID, I have tried to (laughs) eradicate out most of the coughing fits uh, from the episode, but I am clearing my throat a a few times still, which I can't uh, get out because it's during the conversation. So apologies for that. But I was poorly. Um, I hope you still enjoy the episode anyway. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Iona Wayland. Iona is an author, book lover, and tea enthusiast. She considers herself a child of the forest and is a devoted animal mum and mental health professional who specializes in trauma. She depicts aspects of the human experience often in fantastical ways. Common themes of her work include grief, surviving trauma, and finding purpose and strength. Hello and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. You know, it's funny, like I always say I either want stories to like shock and like uh, make my heart pound because I'm like shipping everything or I want them to be about grief so that I can cry. <laughs> like, that's it. Like, that's my two types of stories I want to read. Like, make me cry. I love grief stories. I love stories. One of my favorite uh, young adults books is um, uh, uh, The Sun Is Everywhere. Not The Sun Is Everywhere. I'll give you, yeah, The sun, the Sky Is Everywhere by Jandy Nelson, which is about uh, a child, not a child, a teen grieving her sister. And um, oh, wow. it's just so the most- powerful. I have not read that one, but I'm going to definitely add it to my list. It's beautiful, beautifully written as well. But anyway, fuck that. Tell a little, <laughs> tell everyone about you. Fuck Jandy Nelson. This is about you today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love hearing recommendations. Um, but yes, I'm a, I specialize in trauma and children, but obviously I'm focusing more on trauma today. And then um, I'm an author. So by day, I'm a therapist, and by night, so to speak, I'm an author of a dark fantasy, but I'd like to, I don't know if this is even a genre, but I'm making it a genre where it's like trauma-informed dark fantasy, and um, I'm also like really into like my animals, and I'm a new mom, and so that's been like a fun change for me, so that's just a little bit about me. And you're also a sensitivity reader, is that right? I always forget to say that. Yes, I am a sensitivity reader. Um, and I have information about that on my author website. But yeah, I, I read um, sensitivity read for mental health, as well as um, different like racial things. And then like, if anyone wants to find out about that, they can go down to what my interests are and what I read for at the bottom of my web page. Did you, and I, this is not a question that I have prepared you for, but did you... Like, did you do any training? Like, was there just an amount of research that you've done? Like, is it through personal experience? Like, how does one become a sensitivity reader? Like, I have no idea about that. So it's really funny because it's a very vast um, reasoning behind people becoming sensitivity readers. Like, in the broad spectrum, it can be anything from, like... um, for instance, someone might be like, I have depression and I like to sensitivity read for depression. So it's like an interest all the way to like, I'm a licensed mental health professional and I like have the background in this, which is like my perspective. But how I got into it was I uh, was beta reading for um, the Savior Sister for Jenna Moresi. 
and I really liked it. And I was pointing out all these mental health things that I was finding in it that were accurate. And I really liked it a lot. <laughs> and then um, I was also pointing out certain other things where I'm like, oh, this looks like, or like this is a type of response that's more like usually happens here. Or this one took me out of the story. Or this one put me in the story. Just little things like that. And Jenna was like, you know, like you could definitely be a sensitivity reader and I a little bit knew what that was but I didn't really know what that was at the time and then um, when I looked into it I was like well hell I do this all the time when I'm watching tv and reading books anyway <laughs> so if I can kind of make a side hustle out of it I'll do that yeah it's so interesting one of my biggest bugbears is when people give their villains mental health disorders and mm -hmm. then blame the villainous mm -hmm. actions on the mental health disorder mm -hmm. like it is literally I would just that's it dnf immediate like yeah, same. It, yeah it drives me insane um mm -hmm. okay so your profession is trauma and um you're a mental health professional so I wanted to talk about trauma in books and in fiction and in um, well, I suppose non-fiction as well I can't leave non-fiction people out um but I wondered how writers should even approach like trauma in terms of writing it, in terms of a character's experience? Are there things that they should be aware of? Like how should they research that? Mm -hmm. Like what is the, what is a good, like thoughtful approach to take when approaching trauma? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that's something that like a lot of people think about. And even like with my background, I thought about that before writing too, is like, I just look at motivation and intention. And even though like, that's not a pass, because if something's harmful or misrepresented, it kind of doesn't matter what the intention is, because it's like causing harm. But ultimately, like, what's the motivation and intention behind the writing? And then um, you can get into like researching. And so when I think about research, I think about looking at just because of like me being a like a clinical person <laughs> a clinical professional I personally have to look at criteria for diagnoses or, di so the or DSM so the DSM-5 in the U.S. ICD-10 in the U.K. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are the things that I look at symptomology wise but I also really need like to include the human element. Like I think it's really important to include human elements in it. So like looking at testimonials and um, talking with people who have trauma, if they're open to it and if you do it in like a an intentional way. And then also my train of thought is totally going away. Oh, also I think that it's important to know what trauma even is. So it's really anything that causes your brain to go into fight, flight, freeze mode, um, anything at all. It doesn't mean that that'll become a trauma memory or become PTSD or something di else diagnosable in the trauma scape. But it definitely like, I think a lot of people don't know that trauma is really anything that just makes your brain and body go, ah, and then- So would a fear make, give you trauma? So fear as in like a phobia? Yeah. Yes, that can be traumatic. So there can be a phobia of something. So I have a thalassophobia, which means a fear of deep water, especially stuff that you can't see that freaks mm. me out. Mm. So um, I can have that phobia. 
but if someone were to push me into a muddy pond, that could be traumatic for me because my body is going to react in a fight, flight, or freeze way. And that doesn't mean that it'll turn into like a diagnosable thing later, but in that particular moment, that would be traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm with you um, on the research. So my background is in psychology. I have a, a degree in psychology. I have a master's in cognitive neuropsychology. I love and, it. Yeah. And so it's funny because I was going to do a PhD. I got a scholarship to do a PhD um, cool. on distributed cognition, but in the end I'd like I'd, I'd OD'd on education and I just, I needed a break and then yeah, I was done <laughs> and I wanted money. Um, and so I didn't end up going through with it, but like, even still, I forget stuff, stuff changes, like mm-hmm. criteria changes, symptoms, you know, grow, expand, change, shrink, mm-hmm. you know, uh, treatments change. And, 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 you know, so you, you do, you definitely uh, have to keep your knowledge up to date, especially if you're going to represent it in fiction. Um, And this might be a naive question, but like, so we've talked about sort of the triggers for trauma and what trauma is. What is the expression of trauma? Okay, so this has been changing recently. So I'm glad you brought up this question. So originally, it was seen as the sympathetic nervous response, which means that the amygdala was, um, it's just like a part of the brain. It gets like kind of zappy <laughs> and it gets alive. And that was called the sympathetic nervous response. And then kind of a colloquial term was fight or flight. Then they noticed that people were doing more than just fight or flight. So fight would be using physical force or cutting words flight is what it sounds like where you like run away or try and avoid something they added freeze because they noticed something called dissociation which means that someone disconnects from their body or a personality state or their surroundings like it it helps them cope with it not feeling very real so that's dissociation and then there's also um literal freezing like the person cannot move certain parts of their body or cannot speak or something like that so they added freeze in there now there's a big debate about adding something called fawn and fidget so fawning and i have mixed feelings about this but because I see it more as a survival technique than something that happens like in a traumatic experience. I see it as more as like someone surviving, but it, maybe they'll find out that it does get added to the sympathetic nervous response. But um, fawning is like, let's say you have like this boss that really puts you over the edge and they're kind of scary to talk to. Um, if they're like, hey, I need to see you in my office and you start having like the flutters and you're really freaked out, you might be like, oh my God, I love your outfit today. Your hair looks so great. I'm always open to your feedback. You're such a good leader. All of those things are like flattery to kind of diffuse the situation ahead of time, which is still like a valid survival technique. I just mean like, I don't think it's a, I don't know if it's gonna be included with trauma responses as in like triggered responses. Yeah. And then the last one's fidget. That is exactly what it sounds like where someone will be fidgeting with parts of their body, an item, or even like passing gas or burping or having the hiccups. And that one, I do think because it's so involuntary, that one I do think will end up being added. But um, that's not to say that someone who fidgets all of the time 
is like constantly traumatized it's more like only in certain traumatic situations that that person does that and and I suppose that is also like an anxiety like Mm -hmm. I'm guessing anxiety is connected to trauma or or like the Mm -hmm. potential for trauma Mm-hmm. It's almost like a step before, right? Like, yeah, yeah seems- at least in the US, um, like uh, ASD, not autism spectrum disorder, but um, antisocial. Oh no, no, not no? that one either. <laughs> That's right. No, there's two. So there's someone has oh, acute stress disorder. Okay. If it happens, if they just have uh, PTSD type symptoms within like three months, but if it's it's either three or six months. I should know this, but whatever. Oh, um, and then it'll become PTSD later if it lasts, if the symptoms are longer than that. But all of that's just to say that they are considered, ASD and PTSD are considered anxiety disorders. Okay. So that's, yeah, you're you're on top of things. Yeah, <laughs> so. no, I just, I find it, this is like, uh, this is, you know, this is geek for me. I love this stuff because this is I'm like so my inner learner. I am like, <laughs> info dumping at you no you're not no I love it I love it this is like so like throwback to university as well and all the stuff that mm-hmm. I you know you know because I was I was looking at clinical psychology that's mm-hmm. that's, that's the so world cool. I would have been in if I hadn't mm-hmm. have done what I did um I haven't even asked my questions <laughs> <laughs> like just completely ignored my questions um, okay, what are some of the mistakes that you see writers making when they either try to write about mental health or they try to include trauma? Um, yeah, like what are some of the real faux pas or no-nos or yeah, mistakes that you see? So you brought up one. Also, I'm going to try and not get on a soapbox with this, <laughs> but um, you brought up one that really peeves me where someone has a villainous character or an antagonist and they will make that person do certain behaviors or certain things that are an obstacle for the main character but it like is blamed on or the reasoning behind it the logic behind it is not because it's how that character is it's because they're using a diagnosis of some sort as a personality trait but that's not true so that always immediately takes me out of the story and it also makes me like a little upset because there's so much stigma behind mental health in general that if we keep doing this and words are so powerful if we just keep continuing repeating the same mistakes that we've made for years and years it's just going to continue that stigmatization for longer so that's definitely one so. Yeah, no, I mean, I am, I am all there. I have a, 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 a chapter in one of my books about mental health, mm. basically myth busting. And I mm-hmm. start with a soapbox rant about why you should absolutely not use mm-hmm. mental health in connection like with villains and then here's right. the truth about actual mental health and and I had my so one of my best friends from uni is a clinical psychologist so I was like I honey it. you need to go make sure that I'm up to date on all of this I've done everything <laughs> like and I had her like proper jacket and like make sure mm-hmm. everything was accurate and so I mean it maybe you know it was like it's old now it's like five years old so there's bound to be something wrong in there now but um yeah like because it's so it pisses me off so mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. um but yeah is there anything else you see any other other like mistakes or faux pas or so definitely um 
throwing so I call it like throwing the kitchen sink I don't know where that term comes from honestly but it just means like you include all of the symptoms like everything and all of the symptoms at something which I love because someone did their research but I don't love because it's not realistic so I think they do it all at the same time right yes so they have all of the things all at the same time (laughs) all the things all at the same time and it definitely takes you out of it because the whole point of what causes trauma reactions to like happen is because it is a skill that they used during trauma times when they weren't safe, that did keep them safe. And now they're in a safer environment or that particular trauma is no longer occurring. So that doesn't fit with their daily life now, but it should make sense as to how they dealt with issues in the past. So like if someone goes into freeze mode if they have a caretaker that is berating them and they freeze and if they don't talk, then they know that the berating will end early or the verbal abuse will end early, then that helped them then. But when it's time for them to give a presentation and they're triggered because someone in authority is watching them give a presentation, for example, I would love to see that character. I mean, I don't actually love to see this. This is hard, but it would make more sense if that character would suddenly become silent or not be able to speak smoothly, because that makes sense with the environment they grew up in. So I really don't like when someone throws a whole bunch of symptoms as if it's a checklist and just kind of like throws it at them. It's like that, you know, they have, let's say PTSD because of these symptoms, right? And it's like kind of, but not really. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's so important. So like I'm trying to think about how you know it's it's like a wound a wound so like a Mm -hmm. hero's wound Mm -hmm. the whole point of doing a wound well is to have the cause and the source like Mm -hmm. either event or reoccurring events that happened to create the wound which Mm -hmm. then impacts and affects the behavior in the present time right so it's Exactly. exactly the same with the mental health Uh, Mm -hmm. disorder or the trauma or the Mm -hmm. um you know yeah so what is the cause what was the cause and therefore what was the reaction what was Mm -hmm. the traumatic reaction or behavior and therefore Mm -hmm. how does that affect the character in the real time yeah I love Mm -hmm. that that sorry I'm like processing out loud but like yeah I love it I'm also an out loud processor so I'm very glad that this is happening Um, okay, so I wanted to ask about trigger warnings and content warnings. I almost forgot what the C was then. Trigger warnings and content warnings. Like, what is the difference? When should you use them? Mm-hmm. And I think the other question that people have is where do you, like, where are you supposed to put them and how mm-hmm. much detail do you put in them? So there's a whole range of thought process behind it. So starting first, the difference between content warnings and trigger warnings is content warnings are considered something that any person might find difficult to look at. So like gore or like intense fear of something, things like that. So you would put that in as content warnings. Trigger warnings are when you kind of more are more detailed you don't have to be super detailed but like you're like for instance there might be sa discussed in this book or there might be um anything that would be specific sexual abuse but i don't know if that's like allowed on any 
platform. Okay, cool. <laughs> I have it. no idea. <laughs> I just didn't okay. know what it was. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. I do not mean to use um, acronyms when like- Well, what I will do at the beginning of this show is I will tell everyone that we're going to talk about difficult topics. Um, yes, perfect. So yes, okay, that's yes. what I will do. And that's a content warning. <laughs> that's <we> perfect. <laughs> hey, look at me implementing straight away. <laughs> you were implementing it immediately. <laughs> so, um, so if you talk about something like sexual assault, um, suicide, um, anything, cancer, like very specific pain points that are very harmful for someone who has been a survivor of it to read, that would be more considered trigger warnings. Um, I personally feel like if you have content warnings that kind of cover it and you put it in the beginning of the book, that way, anytime your reader opens the book, they'll have a reminder because they have to flip through the front pages that this is the kind of content in there. That's really helpful. Uh, especially for mental health for you want to make sure you're taking care of your readers and also even if you don't want to think about it in a humanistic way and you want to think about it only in a business sense um, it will cause you to not have as many uh, dnfs and it will help you with ratings because people won't be shocked by what's going on within the book and you're also not like exploiting a group of survivors to put content out there that might be harmful for readers or harmful for survivors to read at that particular time. And I also think that um, some people go so far as to include trigger warnings before each chapter. Uh, sometimes people in the very beginning of the book will be like, hey, this particular trigger thing is talked about from this page to this page. You can be as detailed as you want in it. I personally think this is just total personal opinion. As long as you have that warning whether it's content or trigger or both in the beginning of your book your readers are going to pass by that content warning every single time mm. so those are just my thoughts on it mm. Mm. okay okay um so i'm having thoughts about some of the stuff that's in my own books that i probably should have put content warnings on <laughs> <laughs> it's always hard that is something else it's always like hard at least for me to like, I'm a curious person and I know you're a curious person. Mm. But then when you learn about something where you're like, shit, <laughs> I should have done this differently. That's always hard. But I, I also <clears throat> like that you're like modeling that because no one like is born knowing this stuff. Yeah, and no. also like, I think the, the better skill for someone to have is not to know everything, but to be curious about something and then be willing to learn slash unlearn something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I, uh, that's exactly like my whole ethos. I am a, a learner at heart. I will always mm -hmm. be, a I'm a student of life, a student of the world. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I totally like, I always confess my mistakes. I always mm -hmm. am like, aha, I learned this. But like the thing that I really like doing is then sharing, sharing the things that I learn, right. So mm -hmm. that other people can learn about I love that. That's such a wealth for other people to have that experience with you. Yeah. And I like, I think I might have to, and it's all right. Cause it's not been released. The book is not released yet, but the final book in my trilogy, she mm -hmm. definitely deals with grief and mm -hmm. has some addictive, like it's magic though. It's not so I don't, mm -hmm. I, it's, it's, it's a that funny contenty. Yeah, it sounds, yeah, 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 no, yeah, definitely. Like, but there are addictive behaviors. So I think maybe I will go back and slip in some content warnings. 
Yeah, might as well. It doesn't hurt. Exactly. <laughs> but also exactly. it's helpful too. Like if you have beta readers telling you things. So for instance, I had, I originally had content and trigger warnings in the beginning of my book. Um, but I specifically had readers who had had similar circumstances, like the particular kind of loss I depict, the particular kind of abuse that I depict, and the particular kind of like depression slash grief that I depict. There were lots of beta readers that I intentionally was asked them if they were comfortable reading for me. And then also got their feedback and took it very seriously. And they were like, this, the trigger stuff isn't necessary. Like it wasn't handled in a way that like shocked me or made me like rattly. Um, so I don't think it's needed. So I just took that feedback too. So you can always like pass it by because it's possible that like um, your beta readers won't find it upsetting in that way or won't find it triggering in that way. Yeah, I've had some feedback to say it was reassuring. Um, I love so, that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, and I, I, I don't, I won't go into any more detail because uh, you know, no spoilers. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, let's say an author would like to have a character who has experienced trauma. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the ways to portray that realistically in fiction? Um, so definitely, like we were talking about with making the symptomology make sense is a good way to go. Like, just to keep that in mind, like, why is this? Like, I get that this is a symptom of trauma. Totally makes sense. But like, why is it this particular symptom? Like, how did that used to help them? And why is it getting in the way of their life now? So that's one thing to be really careful about. Um, I also think it's important to remember that people don't have to have like diagnosable levels of things to show trauma symptoms. So like in the DSM-5 and the ICD-10, these diagnostic manuals are there just like for insurance purposes. They're not like depicting all of the human experience. So looking at something called, it's called sub-threshold, which means that the person is showing trauma symptoms, but it's not meeting the threshold of something that's like deeply affecting their everyday life, but it is something that pops up from time to time or under certain circumstances. So having that in mind is really good. Um, I also think, oh, sorry. Do you have an example? No, I'm more trying to dig deeper. Do you have an example of what that sub-threshold, what was the phrasing that you said, like that they have, was it trauma trauma reactions? Trauma reactions. Yeah, Yeah. what is some of that, what would that look like? So this could be, this is like a bunch of, there's a whole scale of how it could look because people are so diverse in their reactions and how their brains process things. But like a couple different examples might be, let's say someone was in a car accident and they're okay, but um, they might at certain uh, stop lights or on that particular road might be a little jumpier or hypervigilant than they would have been. Um, other times so it's not to the point where they're like not able to leave their home or they're not able to use a car but it is causing them stress in that particular area that doesn't have to be that hard or you could go the total other direction and be like this person rarely has a trauma reaction but when they do it's intense so it's like this person rarely has this trauma reaction but every once in a while they'll get a horrible horrible flashback nightmare combo something like that where it makes one night of sleep 
for them a month or a year or something cause them some distress but it's not to the point where like they can't function at work or something like that or it's affecting their relationships Mm, this is so interesting um this is so interesting (laughs) like I just oh I I yeah I want to go back and read like all the literary journals on the like (laughs) all fascinating and it just makes me think brains are so cool because their primary function is to protect you so I just I like that when people portray it realistically, it really does show through. Even the really, really difficult symptoms are only there to protect you because that it used to work. Mm. Yeah, and that's, I don't think I've ever thought about it like that, but I love how much that makes sense mm-hmm. and how you can easily make that make sense in fiction. And it would mm-hmm. also bring a real sense of, um, like gestaltism like full circle yes. like the whole mm-hmm. is more than the sum of the parts in terms of mm-hmm. like meaning and yep oh I love this so much okay I'm so glad I'm so glad because <laughs> I could talk about this all day yeah <laughs> I actually but... literally do talk about it all day with people I work with yeah <laughs> um okay so are you in research or more therapy more therapy um I like reading research articles once someone else did the research <laughs> so I'm that person yes yeah, so. I'm an implementing person <laughs> I love it okay so I've got some questions from patrons so Shane cool. says how has your work as a mental health professional influenced the themes in your fiction and where did your where did the inspiration for ashes come from oh that's a good question we're gonna get like deep Um, So uh, a lot of mental health professionals are there because or are in the field that they're in because they've been through certain things that they wish that they had someone like their grown self when they were little. And so that's something that I thought of in Ashes where I'm like, I want this book to reach people that need it most. So I want to create something that has themes that touched on maybe things that I've been through before or people really close to me have been through before. And when someone reads it, they can see parts of themselves in that, but also know that there's like hope too. So that's another theme is like, there's, there's survival after an event whatever that event or events, because it can be over time and multiple traumas, because it's hard being a human. So I think that when there's a book out there, I just wish that I had had maybe when I was a new adult or a teen, even though this is totally an an adult book, like I I don't want (laughs) it to get twisted here. But like, it's just something that speaks to, I think, a lot of people's experiences. So I wanted the theme to be like this is a book that's an allegory of PTSD and that's what I want to put into the world but at the same time that a person people are very resilient and brains are made to heal that's like their design is to heal and protect and just showing that facing those fears can cause that kind of healing to happen do we have plasticity all the way through our lives? Like, or does, cause I thought the, the brain plasticity reduces. It slows very yeah. down. Yeah, like yeah. way down. I want to say at the latest age 10. 
but I also could be wrong and I need to look at that. And that's a really good question. And now I'm very curious. And so now I'm going to find articles and send them to you later today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we do, we always have the capacity though, to have plasticity, to make those new neural connections and stuff like that. Mm. Um, It's just that when you're a kid, it, it happens like really, really fast and very easily. Whereas if someone has a particular neural pathway, that's really, I, this isn't exactly what it looks like, but if you just think of like the groove or the rut is very deep. And so jumping out of that rut and using a different path is harder. That's what um, going through mental health help or not therapy isn't for everybody. Um, so if someone isn't interested, then that's totally fine. But like even just doing self-care type things can help get that person out of that particular rut is that this is such a random question but like is there such a thing as slow trauma so like the slow repeated Mm -hmm. thing I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of like the pandemic Mm -hmm. and the isolation for children Mm -hmm. like is that is there a form of like slow trauma that can have can then create trauma trauma responses at Absolutely. a later date. Oh. Actually, if you want to get like real scientific, um, they can tell, for instance, um, which uh, Irish ancestors have had ancestors that survived the potato famine because it has imprinted on their genetic code that those people went through that trauma. It's Shut nuts the fuck up are you (laughs) kidding me no so like things like that so they can find on a genetic level that that's why they talk about generational trauma Trauma. so like um survivors of slavery and human trafficking we've got um different i'm trying to think of the worst horrible things that happen in our world like anything indigenous genocide like the indigenous genocides holocaust like all of that can deeply deeply affect someone um and their future generations and that's why there's kind of a mantra in trauma therapy specifically of like it's gonna end with me because you can do things that can help your brain not feel sick and heavy with ancestral stuff that might pop up can we just talk about this all my love because <laughs> I would love to oh my god like I literally need you to send me scientific articles on generational trauma yeah oh, I, I am really well <laughs> I am fascinated by mm-hmm. generational trauma I I mm-hmm. don't like I need to understand the genetics and like mm-hmm. the imprinting like I don't I want the data on that mm-hmm. um I I will also talk to you about this off air um mm. okay so oh fuck there was like another question that came I don't know whether oh, it's gone okay never mind um another- <laughs> <laughs> so glad this is, because if you do if any like listeners that I'm not gonna send a million articles to today <laughs> um want to look it up it's still considered a soft science just because it's not always replicatable it's like not 100 replicatable but it's called epigenetics so if anyone wants to look into epigenetics then that is definitely something that like if you really want to go down a rabbit hole when you're supposed to be sleeping, that's one to do. Yes, this is the kind of stuff like that is an input wormhole for sure. Um, 
Okay, so I've got a question from Matt, and uh, uh, who's also a patron. And Matt says, how do you write for that specific other if, li- if the lived experience isn't your own? So Matt says, I support people with mental health challenges, which has inspired my writing, but I'm not sure what right I have to do anything with it after I've got the words out of me. Mm. I really like this person's like self-check radar. It sounds like they really are questioning their intention, which would be the first step is to like, what's your intention? It sounds like for this person that they really want to have um, like a voice for loved ones that are going through whatever it is they're going through. So just like knowing that you're going in with the intention of like love and respect and like survivorship mentality I think that that is really powerful to put that out into the world, especially if someone does their research and goes through the beta reader process and all that stuff, just to make sure that there aren't any little, little subconscious things that we all absorb from our society and the stigmas that society has for mental health. And I also think that by this person asking that question, that means that they're already doing the work. Mm-hmm. I agree. Knowing this person, they are literally the nicest human. Ah, that's so like, lovely. Yeah, um, this person has a range of um, like kids stories that are just exquisite. Aww. They're really inclusive, um, and uh, yeah, they're like uh, some of them are written in, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce it, and I'm sorry. Is it Maori? I don't. I can't roll my R. Oh, uh, oh, like Hawaiian native, um, um, New Zealand. Oh, New Zealand. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow, I yeah. completely missed an entire island. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, also, I probably like butchered pronouncing it anyway. Um, but yes, okay, right. Some questions from another patron. Lynn says, how do you look after yourself when you are writing difficult scenes? Okay, that's a really good question too, because some writer authors are own voices and in some respects for Ashes, it's own voices, uh, like racially, ethnically and somewhat trauma wise. So I just make sure that I am feeling okay that day that particular time that I'm writing it, doing self-care stuff before and after writing. And then also knowing that if it's cutting too deep, like if it if it's like ruining or bringing up too much stuff, like if any author, when they're writing something, it's bringing up too much stuff, they don't have to force themselves to do it. We actually call that like white knuckling because you're like gripping onto something. You're just forcing yourself through something. It's just like, you're so valuable as like a human being And of course you want to create this work. And at some point, maybe it's something that you want to face, but I don't want any human being to feel like an obligation to regurgitating or picking at a wound, so to speak, just to get an art piece out there. I mean, that could be really powerful in the long run, but the person really has to make sure that they're doing it safely. Okay. How do you tell one person's experience of trauma or or mental health without suggesting that that is how everyone experiences it? Oh, okay. So I think that on the one hand, you would think (laughs) that most people know that one depiction doesn't 
isn't like a monolith it's not like the spokes main character for everyone with that particular thing but if you wanted to um level up your writing game you could have other characters with similar issues like a, maybe a similar diagnosis diagnosis or diagnoses that depicts it differently and they might not be the main character but you can see where the main character's struggle differentiates from someone else's struggle so like if you want to depict depression because that is unfortunately very common and it can get really intense there might be one person that sleeps a lot and another uh character that um doesn't like doing photography like they used to and a couple months out of the year they don't get into photography anymore and those are two different ways that depression might express itself and you're you're showing not telling basically those two different aspects of depression for that particular example if you could tell writers to do one thing to improve the representation, to improve their writing, like about trauma or mental health, what would you tell them? Um, I would say include people along the way. Um, as long as the person's consenting to it and they're in the mental space to talk with you about it, because a lot, we don't know how much we've like internalized, honestly, like there have been people that have had the experience of um, like anxiety, for example, who write stereotypical anxiety things that are like, could easily be debunked, just because that's something that they had heard or thought was true, for example. So it's just like, just including more from that particular population, because there's going to be someone that reads your work that is has a similar experience, like traumatic experience or similar symptomology as what you're depicting. And then also um, making sure to just be open and curious about different things and willing to unlearn some stuff. Um, Cause it, it always feels weird when you're like, that's not what I thought, that's weird. And your brain kind of has to like reorganize so to speak and upload a new mental file. Um, but I think that's really important just to make sure that you're open as a person and that you're also having more eyes on your work because it's not, you can only self-check so much. And at some point it's kind of like, it takes a village to raise a kid. It also takes a village to raise a book baby. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you recommend any books or resources or websites or, or charities or like places that authors can go to start their research and to um, yeah learn more about trauma and mental health in order to kind of represent it more accurately? Yeah, so um, there's Dr. Vanderkalk had um, The Body Keeps the, the Score that just like blew up. Um, the whole trauma conceptualization that I think is um, like layman, it, it is written enough in layman's terms that anyone could pick it up and read some of it. Some of it is like kind of intense. And so you might have to do some of your own research, but that's a really good one. Looking at the um, online, like some online resources are NIM and NAMI. So NIM is the National Institute for Mental Health and NAMI is the National Alliance for, oh, no, I should know this. I'm looking it up, I'm cheating. I know this, just pretend that I knew this off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why isn't it telling me? National Alliance on Mental Illness. 
I was so close. And then um, also if someone want, is like into watching like testimonial type stuff, cause you could at, like also just look up like my experience with insert particular symptom or particular illness. Um, but you could also look at, there's this really awesome person named Nadine Burke Harris. And like, there's this whole Ted talk that she does where she talks about um, something called ACEs, which stands for adverse childhood events. And it can really get into like the origin story of your main character. It talks about physical, it's kind of throwing back to epigenetics a little bit where it's throwing in there, like these are traumatic events that occur over like a long period of time or was really intense in childhood. And if this happened, the higher the number, the higher it has the potential of harming the human body and just like how that affects the body itself. Um, and so that might be something to look into. Just make sure if you're looking at that or listening to that TED talk that you like take care of yourself because sometimes when people watch that TED talk or take the ACE score, they realize that they've you know, been through some big T trauma situations that they may not have labeled it trauma until that point. So that's another one to look at. Um, of course, also the DSM-5 and the ICD-10. I mean, they're really expensive books, so like you don't have to buy them. But like if you're looking at research for your particular uh, disorder, then you can uh, look up what does the DSM-5 say about this or what does the ICD-10 say about this? Amazing. That is a boatload of resources. So thank you. For that. I really appreciate that. Um, well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. Yay. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Oh my. Okay. So this one's dumb. But when I, okay, okay. so in, in my particular state in the US, you can have a job at 14 and a half years old. And so I, uh, I I really wanted this particular car. It was a uh, red Jeep Wrangler and I really, really wanted it. And I knew that the only way I could get it was if I bought it myself. And so I forged my mom's signature on a pass to be able to work. And I got my guidance counselor at school to sign the signature on a pass and be able to work. <laughs> and I got a ride to apply at a nursing home as a dietary aide which is just so such flattering attire, the hairnet and everything. Um, so I got there and I was like, hey, here's my resume. And they were like, we're really hurting for dietary staff. You would be a dishwasher here. This is what you get paid. And honestly, it's like legit minimum wage at the time. But I thought I would be like so wealthy because I was 14 and a half years old and I was like <laughs> in eighth grade. And so I was like, I want to do it. So I interviewed well and they gave me the job. But in order to work in a nursing home, there is something called a tuberculosis test that you have to get. And it's this whole thing where they look at like a reaction in your skin and whatever. But the point is, is that I was before my pregnancy, my pregnancy really made me not afraid of needles, but I have always been super afraid of needles. And so they're coming at me with the TB test. And I was like, I know 14 year old brain logic. I will just hold my breath and then I won't <laughs> cry in front of my future employers. So I held my breath so long that I passed out. No. And, <laughs> and then my mom, 
was on the emergency contact list. So they called her and she was like, where is she? Where, what is going on? What is happening? And so I got completely found out, but I got the job (laughs) and I continued working there and I was able to buy my like super used red jeep wrangler from like a private seller that sold it for super cheap and um i bought it before i even could drive so that is spectacular i absolutely love that story (laughs) that is amazing i love it so much i uh oh my god and i love that you actually got the car at the end of it as well i did i did i got it when i was like by the time i turned 15 but in the u.s and in my particular state you can't get your like permit until you're like 15 years old and nine months or something so i had this car and i was like yeah and couldn't drive it We have to be like 17 in the UK before you can drive. Yeah, it's horrific. Especially if, if you live like in the middle of nowhere and there's like no shops for like nine yeah. miles in either yes. direction. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books and anything else, your services, your sensitivity services and <laughs> anything else you would like to add? Yes. Um, thank you for having me. My, I'm most active on Instagram and that's at Iona.Wayland. And I'm trying TikTok. I don't know if I'm doing well. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm on there too. And then um, I have my website where if you scroll down to the bottom, it shows my interests and like things I know about what I can read for in my rates and how to submit like um, a potential like ask a query, so to speak, to see if I uh, can schedule you to do um, a sensitivity reading. And then to get my book, it's available in uh, ebook, paperback, and audiobook. And the ebook and paperback are available through Amazon. And the audiobook is available through Audible. And I had a really, really incredible voice actor do the book. And so when I, it's just like, so it was just such a cool experience um, when I got to hear it through auto, like audiobook because it just felt like I was reading the book from a totally different lens. So I think people should check that out if they're not into it. audiobooks. I will put all of the links in the show notes. Thank you so much to all of the show's listeners. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as stacks of bonus goodies, then you can by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Iona Wayland, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I am talking to erotica author Golden Angel. It is an enlightening conversation. I will say this. I learned an awful lot of stuff that I had no idea about. Um, So from one trigger warning to another, we do talk um, about sort of dark romance, a lot of different kinks get brought up. And yeah, so if that's not your thing, then I just wanted to let you know if it is your thing, oh, you're going to enjoy this episode. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.